Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Stay Grounded. Hope you guys are having a fantastic day, and hope you guys are excited to get the new year started right. And I'm so excited for 2019. I can't wait to share all of the amazingness that comes from this year with you guys. So thank you for sticking around, and thanks for starting the year off strong with Stay Grounded. So this week's guest is Miss Kristen Berman. So Kristen is the co-founder of the Common Sense Lab, which is a subcenter of the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University. She uses behavioral insights to design rigorous experiments and test new solutions that aim to increase people's health, wealth, and happiness. She was on the founding team for behavioral economics at Google. She's co-authored a bunch of books, name one called Hacking Human Nature for Good, and consults with all sorts of different organizations like the World Bank, Facebook, Kiva, and more. I mean, you should actually head to her website, irrationallabs.org, to learn more about the work she does because it's pretty fascinating. Kristen is is not usually the type of guest I bring on the show, uh, which is actually which actually made the episode that much better because so Kristen has such a vast passion for essentially behavioral economics. She wants to understand why people behave the way they do. And she's actively building solutions that makes those lives better. And what I love about that is when we come on to Stay Grounded, I mean, at least on this episode, I mean, we dove into how behavioral economics and choices we make and the habits we build and the beliefs we almost manifest into our lives and how these different things create patterns and environments in our lives that create the realities we're we're experiencing. So I think it's a wonderful episode to start off the new year with because all we talk about is habits. We talk about habits. We talk about changing our environment. We talk about why we do what we do, what we're driven by, and why it's so hard to change. Or when we want to change, why do we fall off? The differences between instant and and delayed gratification and how we can use both of those to get what we want in our lives. I mean, this episode was chock full of such actionable advice and tips that I personally am implementing in my life to not only break bad habits or to not even break bad habits, just create new realities and new experiences with much more ease. Because I think one of the fundamental things that Chris and I talked about was just this idea that it's a lot easier to change your environment than it is to change your belief system. And I think for the longest time, we read a lot in the self-help world and, and, and a lot of books and mentors and gurus who really focus on pushing a better mindset. But the mindset's the hardest thing to change. And yes, I think that's something that we still should focus on, whether it's building more belief or confidence in ourselves. But over time, changing our environment's a much quicker way to actualize those changes we want in our mindset, in our psyche, and just what we want in the future. So anyways, hope you guys enjoy this episode to kick off the new year. I was super excited to have Kristen on board. And if you guys want to get in touch with Kristen, just head to irrationallabs.org. And you can learn more about her. And she reads every single note that comes in through her contact form. So yeah, if you guys have questions, want to thank her for anything, just reach out. And 
it's a great way to, to get involved. So anyways, hope you guys enjoy this episode. But before we do so, make sure you're subscribed to the Stay Grounded podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or YouTube or wherever you choose to tune in. And if you're not already joined the Stay Grounded community, head to rajana.com forward slash stay grounded. We share all sorts of different insights, tips, post-podcast discussions for you to enjoy. So hope you're enjoying life and hope you guys are kicking off the new year with a bang. So anyways, big hugs. And without further ado, here is the wonderful Kristen Berman. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome back to another episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you're all having a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic day. I sure am because I'm sitting across, or I guess across the screen, from a new friend of mine, Miss Kristen Berman. Is that how I say it? Kristen Berman? Perfect. Yep. Woo! Killed it. Nailed it. I am one for one today. So, I'm excited, Kristen. I was going over your bio and just reading more about you before we started chatting and You've got a very interesting set of skills that I'm kind of excited to dive in and, and, and understand the, the reason and motives behind why. Can we dive in? Yeah, let's, let's do it. All right, cool. So already introed you before this episode started, so everyone kind of has an idea of who you are and what you do. But one question I did have about your background in general is you, you seem to have a, a pretty deep understanding or at least passion for understanding why people do what they do. Where did that passion come from? Great question. So I, I think early in my career, I, I was in charge of kind of understanding customers and doing research at large software company Intuit. And really just kind of came with the realization that asking people questions around what they want and their preferences is, is very difficult. So we can get into this later, but people tend to lie or we're very good storytellers to ourselves around why we do the things we do. You can ask people questions, but we don't really know if that correlates to our actual behavior. And so that kind of spun me off into a, well, what, why do we do the things we do? What does cause our behavior? And the field of behavioral economics was really coming up at that point. Um, Dan Ariely just wrote Predictably Irrational. Richard Thaler wrote Nudge. And these are two kind of seminal books within the behavioral economics world. And so behavioral science is really just the science of why we do the things we do with more of a quantitative view to our behavior versus kind of just relying on asking humans questions about their behavior. And so that is very enticing to think about, you know, the idea that we're kind of systematically irrational and we can learn about ourselves from more of a science and an RCT perspective. RCT is just a a way to do an experiment. So I I mentioned RCT, but want to explain it. It's basically an A-B test or you change only one thing and learn about behavior. So what's what's one of the biggest things you've learned about just the human psyche in general that relates back to almost day-to-day living? Like what does drive us to make everyday decisions? I don't think, I mean, I I wish there was just one force. So I'll I'll tell you the, the force that I think is maybe people underestimate driving us, but there isn't just one answer that says all humans are driven by X. If there was, I think, Um, much easier world to live in. Yeah. Um, I think the one that consistently surprises me is how much we like our own ideas. So we can call this the endowment effect, which is basically if you kind of put effort into something or created it, you may uh, value it at a higher level. And this is kind of closely related to loss aversion, where you don't really want to lose something that you have. Uh, Endowment is a little bit more around that I've created it, or I've put effort into it, and I have sunk costs. 
And so ideas are these things where we have created ourselves and we put out into the world and we want people to like, and we're kind of stuck on our own ideas. And so when I talk to people, I, I remember that, right? And so if you're in a conversation, the question is, can you get somebody else to come up with the idea? Because they tend to like their own ideas better. Ooh, that's, that's really powerful. So have these, have these concepts shown up a lot in your day-to-day relationships? Like when you're working with people, like when you first started out, I imagine that you didn't have all the knowledge to be able to apply and see the reasons why people drive what they do. Was there an experience or something that sort of made everything come together, like what you were learning with what you were experiencing in just day-to-day interactions? I think once you learn about our behavioral biases, you, you tend to be more attuned to this in the world. So you'll go to a coffee shop and see like, wow, the, the pricing really pushed me to buy the medium size versus the small size. And so you really pay attention to the small details and design in our world as, as soon as we understand that we're influenced so much by these details. But personally, um, that is kind of the crazy thing is we can learn so much about our flaws, our rationalities, our biases, but overcoming them real time is not possible. This is why the the biases are the rationalities of the flaws, right? So I, as an expert or you as an expert in your field, can learn about this, but it really, the essence of behavioral science is that information, just knowing about my biases does not actually help me change them. And we can get into what does, but one of the key tenets is that I can tell you all about, let's say, the, the muffin is bad, right? You, you should eat the muffin, it's calories, etc. But if there's a muffin close to you and you're hungry, you might eat it. Yeah. It's the same thing with knowing around our, our rationalities is just knowing it is not enough, even for me or for other behavioral science experts. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to what, what drives us to make everyday decisions, I feel like if you're passionate about something, you're going to be more likely to follow through on something more intrinsically versus extrinsically. So I'd love to talk about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation almost. What do you think is the source of intrinsic motivation from a behavioral standpoint? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's Robin Hanson. There's a nice book that basically says there is no intrinsic motivation, that everything mm-hmm. is, is socially driven or, or like reputation driven. So that's kind of one side of the argument that basically a lot of our behavior, even if we think it's 100% altruistic, is still driven by extrinsic type rewards. To define these things, extrinsic means maybe you're given money to do something and that uh, is the reason you're doing it versus an intrinsic behavior is much more of a um, defined as something that's self-motivated without kind of any external factors. So I would say there's that. and, and And I think that that is reasonable. You know, we're driven a lot of by social status and reputation. And we can say that this is our internal motivation, but maybe it's not. And I think, you know, there's left in a room alone, and you follow your own instinct on what to do. Um, There is something to be said for kind of, you know, having a a deep curiosity around an element of life, and then continuing with that curiosity. I tend to prefer the word curiosity to passion. Passion kind of proclaims it's permanent and that it means you must do it. All, all the, it has a lot of weight versus curiosity kind of is an open door that you could choose to go through. And I think curiosity is a cool concept just because it's something that you can pick up at any given moment. I mean, you can begin, you said to yourself, it's fleeting. It's not necessarily something that you have to stick with for life. You can be curious about one thing and then passionately curious about another. What about when you're curious about yourself? I guess like, wouldn't you define that as passion technically? When you're curious about yourself? I guess, yeah. Like when you get curious about yourself, that turns into like, oh, why am I doing what I'm doing? 
and you start asking that question. The reason I'm asking, um, not to go down a rabbit hole, um, the reason I'm asking is because I've always felt like my own personal drivers for doing things are based on this esoteric concept that I've coined called a why. Like, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's like my why driver, whether it's I want to make sure my family's taken care of or I want to make sure that I experience certain things in life. So there's, there's these like two different things that are motivating me. And so I guess I'm curious, just in general, your take on being driven by social needs, which in my case, I guess would be my family, but then me also wanting to go out and just experience the world, whether that's, that has anything to do with people knowing about it, but it's just me wanting to do it. So I guess, which one's stronger? Okay. So, so I think, so I'm a skeptic. So you say, well, I'm going to ask me the five whys to why I do something. And, and I think this, we're very good storytellers. So I say, I don't really know if that's why you did something. Mm. So I'll give you a few examples. There's kind of a famed organ donation study that asked people to donate their organs. And in one case, the box is checked already for you that says, yes, I want to donate. And in one case, the box is checked already for you, but it says, no, I don't want to donate. And what happens is that people follow the default. They follow basically the path of least resistance, which is not unchecking the box. That means that some people are now donating their organs and some people are not. Now, the thought exercise is if you stop them after, you know, in the US, it's the, the DMV or the, you know, you make this decision attached with their driver's license. And if you stop them afterwards, as soon as they made this decision and you ask them, why are you, why did you make this decision to donate your organs? The people who chose to donate their organs may say things like, because I, really care about humans and I'm a very good person. And this happened to me in the past. And the people who chose not to may say things around doctors, you know, not being trustworthy or et cetera. Very few people would say that I was just too lazy to uncheck the box. So it's not that we shouldn't be asking these questions of ourselves and exploring our own curiosity. But I think, you know, if we want to kind of drive our behavior, we want to also consider the environment as determining our behavior versus us having as much agency over what we do and why we do. So it's a, it's a nice exercise to go through, but equally as nice is to deeply understand the forces within your environment that are pushing you one way or the other so that you can basically understand, you know, why did you do that? Well, maybe it's not just you wanted to, maybe it's because, you know, the, the box was checked. So, and that's great distinction, by the way. Thank you for that. And on that note though, like, so I guess my environment in my example would be my, like me having a family. I guess that would be an environment. It doesn't have to be a physical environment. It can be even just mental capital, right? Mind space. Yep. I'll give you an example as well. So for my personal life, I uh, was living in you know San Francisco, had a couple roommates and decided basically I want to kind of design my life more actively. And I moved in with 11 people. So I started the house in San Francisco with my partner and we recruited nine of our friends and we got everyone to live together. And what happened then is that I actually lost 20 pounds. Now, why did I lose 20 pounds? It's because I disrupted my routine. My environment changed, right? I, I didn't necessarily actively start working out, but I did because my friends were cooking, started eating better, right? I started cooking uh, more versus going out to eat. So kind of, as you say, like your family determines your environment. You, you know, for us also, our friends determine our environment. And uh, if we think about maybe one of the biggest upsets you could do to yourself, it's probably moving or changing environments uh, and your habits uh, will change much more quickly than if you kind of force feed yourself a habit script. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. So uh, I have a question on that. 
So let's say I want to make a lasting change in my life. Like I've been playing the same story in my mind over and over again. And it's like this self-fulfilling loop, if you would. Like I know how the story ends, so it's predictable for me to go on it. How does one willingly make that change? Because I feel like we as creatures of comfort, we want that, that security. We want that safety net of just knowing what's going to happen subconsciously. Yeah. So when we want to make change and whether it's get in shape, do something different, be someone else, or not even be someone else, just be a better version of yourself. There's that resistance that comes in because you're, I guess you're saying that the story is what drives us. So do we change the story or do we change the environment in order to make change in our lives? I generally think you, you change the environment as we think about uh, making change in your life. So I guess the behavioral perspective is you have beliefs and what we typically think is beliefs create behavior. And the behavioral perspective challenges that a little and says, actually, it could be for some, maybe not all, is that behavior creates beliefs. And so by taking the action, doing the behavior, you know, if you donate to charity, you don't view yourself as altruistic or somebody who does this before, but afterwards, you do. Now, we could say, but can't I just convince people to be more altruistic and then donate to charity? Well, sure, that's just a lot of work. Can we just make it really easy for people to donate to charity? And then afterwards, they create the identity. So I think some, you know, if people are stuck in loops in our heads, we all are, there's a few, few things to think about. One is what behavior do you just do? So instead of kind of waiting to change your beliefs or your mindset, is there something you can just do? And some of that is identifying what is the correct behavior for you to do. That's probably the hardest part is to get out of that loop. So for instance, if you wanted to start exercising more and you thought, you know, I just can't do it. I'm, you know, it's not me. Buy a dog. Why would you buy a dog? Because every day now, you're going to have to walk for 15 minutes morning and night. And so you've done one behavior that's kind of created an environmental change in your life that's made it much harder for that loop to keep playing. So that's one. The other thing is most people have jobs and we're highly effective at our jobs. Yeah. And we don't have these problems that say, I just can't figure out how to do the thing. Like somehow we figure it out in a work setting. And so I really like to look at work settings and say, what can you take from your work environment and bring it into your personal goals, your personal ambitions? Um, and that's a very, it's a nice thought exercise for everyone. But a few of the key takeaways would be things like other people. In, never in a world would I just say, I have one goal and I'm not going to tell anyone at work about what, what this goal is. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds silly. Yeah. In a work context, you're telling everyone, you know, what the goal is. You're asking them to hold you accountable for it. Um, you have meetings to hold you accountable for. You all create milestones. You have deadlines. You have big uh, things at the end of the quarter, right? So I think we're kind of missing something. It's not that we can't achieve our personal goals. It's actually really hard to do anything. And the work environment has kind of put a lot of things in place to make it incrementally easier that we can probably hijack when we're on our own. That's brilliant. It's almost like an accountability-based environment. I didn't even think about the dog example. That's actually brilliant in a way because you're right. If I have a dog, I have to, whether if I want to be more responsible, whether it's clean up more, whether it's just make a change in my life, introducing something that's going to force me to do so is a great way to do it. It's almost like forced struggle. Where the struggle between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation comes. So you can imagine if I'm struggling to learn a new skill, if I prepay a tutor to do it, I'm going to have to do it, right? I've already paid. I'm probably going to have to learn it. Now that's extrinsic motivation. And so it may be that I, I learn this new skill and then I'm bad at practicing after the tutor goes away. But I'm giving myself a runway of saying, well, at least I'm going to kind of you know have a faster start 
yeah. get the at least the energy to activate my my desired habit or or behavior uh, a little bit easier. It's almost like you're just turning into a project manager for your life. Yeah, that's very nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Exactly. like you're like a project manager for your life. That's awesome. Now, why do you think people don't want to change? So, so there's a few things. One, if I believe that I have to change, then I believe that currently I am wrong. <laughs> Right. And so the idea that we believe we're inherently uh, mean people, incorrect, not smart, flawed, it's a very, very difficult pill to swallow. And so this is what we call cognitive dissonance. It's not like I'm going to say I'm going to do this thing that I was wrong. You basically say I was going to, I'm doing this thing and maybe there's a few other ways I could have done it, but I made the best choice available to me. So we tend to rationalize a lot of our behavior as not being incorrect, but just the smartest it could have been at the time. And so I think people don't necessarily, we don't really think that there's a burning platform in many areas of our life to change, because if we did, we'd have this cognitive dissonance. So that's, that's one. We don't want to believe that we're wrong. The second is status quo is one of the biggest forces that we have in life, right? It's like, I'm doing the thing and it makes me very happy. Why would I change doing the thing? It takes a lot of energy and it's risky out there. So we kind of compile this, like, I have certainty right now and I'm going to go into an uncertain world with the idea that I have to do something in order to get into that uncertain world. Like we're have all the forces working against us to bring change into our life. I guess on that note, is that why you think people who might have habits that have brought them maybe pain in the past, whether it's the people they, they attract in their life, whether it's dating in different ways. Like, I mean, at least in my life, I've seen people, I have friends and some family members who continuously date people that end up hurting them or continuously make mistakes with money that end up hurting them, but they continuously do it. Is it because they know that they've essentially survived this? So it's like the status quo didn't kill them. And so if they try something different, then it's like the fear of the unknown. Like, why do you think people make these, these consistently seemingly from the outside hurtful decisions for themselves again and again and again? So I think with finances, it's a lot about the environment that you're in. So if you're used to paying the minimum payment on a credit card, you will continue to make poor financial decisions. And credit card companies don't help us by having the anchor being the minimum payment. So, so in order to change your behavior, you have to actively decide that you're going to change the minimum payment and do that at least, at least the first time that you get a new credit card when you're trying to refund. So I think we, we, again, we don't really want to blame some of the beliefs. We more want to blame the environment and say, what about the environment is causing some of these continual bad behaviors. And can I change the environment? For instance, go, if you're consistently overdrafting, which people have, have an issue with, go to a no-fee bank. There's a lot of no-fee banks that withdraw chime and capital that automatically help you save when you get paid. Now, this doesn't cause me to change my beliefs or like change my habits and patterns. It just is, a, again, a one-time decision that can then help me get out of this that we're assigning blame to, we assign a lot of blame to ourselves. Say it's just me, but in reality, the system is working against us in many ways. That's the finance aspect where we do see people doing repeatedly poor behaviors, but I wouldn't sign it to a belief system. I would sign it to their environment. Yeah. Now for breakups, maybe very different. <laughs> or for, yeah. for relationships, this is a much harder question. I think generally uh, we think of things like norms. So if you're continually dating somebody who may not be great for you. How does this person fit into your friend group? Are you sourcing them because they maybe they fit nicely into your friend group, right? Um, so to get somebody completely different would mean that you'd have to change, change friends. Change friends, and 
maybe you feel really good about yourself. You, you like how you are with one person and a lot of kind of some dating research. Uh, Logan Uri, he's a, a dating coach expert, reminds people about this a lot, that basically we are one type of person when we are with a, a significant other. And so if you yeah. like who you are with that person, it uh, may be hard to be another type of person when you're with somebody else. And you can kind of see that with your friends. You feel differently when you're with different friends. So, so I guess it comes back to the environment. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy. Every single example you've given me has made me realize how conscious I need to be of my own environment. How does one begin just becoming more aware of the environmental factors that are influencing day-to-day decisions? This is a good question. So, so I think knowing that that our environment influences is, is a start. Cause what would we do then? We'd say, well, I want to lose weight. Well, you know, I, I want to then have the veggies actually one thing for eating. It's like, you're not never going to maybe learn to cook or have enough time to, as much as you want to, uh, to yeah. go grocery shopping. But now there are these services that can deliver for you. And so you start actually going through a process that says, I'm not the bad guy, but I can design my environment to make it easier to do the things that I want to do. What would I do? How would I change my environment to make the behavior I want to do so much easier so that I can't not do it? Or how would I make it so much more appealing so that I don't mess up and stop saying I have to change my beliefs and I change my beliefs? It's actually just like, no, just like sign up for an Instacart or a blue apron once in a while so that you have, you know, about it. And that's a, again a one time decision that your highest motivation, everyone can do that. And then it helps you when you're at your lowest point of low willpower or feeling depleted at the end of the day to follow through on your intentions. Oh, one-time decisions. I, it's, that's another one that stuck with me. I wanted to chat about that because I think that's powerful. You're right. I mean, if I feel I just have to make a decision once and then potentially that problem is going to be solved, I'm much more likely to follow through on it. Mm-hmm. Is there a way to bake that mindset into decisions that aren't necessarily one-time decisions? Like, How do I start to get excited about doing things again and again and again? I'm not a huge fan of people trying to say, I need to have all these habits. The things that that mindset doesn't work for is something like meditation. Like, so for, yes, for meditation, yeah. you're going to have to create a habit and, and it's going to be painful. But for most other things, there are kind of ways around this. I have to do it every day sort of thing. And I have to remember and I have to like it. And I have to, so for instance, like one of the things, you know, loneliness is a big kind of cause of unhappiness. How would you hack loneliness? You could imagine setting up, calendar invites, reoccurring calendar invites that you can do once with a few friends so that you have, you know, you have your Sunday breakfast with one friend and you have your Thursday dinners with another friend. Maybe they're every other week or maybe they're once a month, but you set them up so that instead of having a default be an empty calendar, your default is a full calendar. So I tackle these issues one by one. There's no silver bullet for all of them, but to really think strategically about how you design again, your environment and your life to, to make it easier on yourself to do the thing that you want to do. Now, do you think making decisions or, or creating systems in one part of your life makes it easier to create them in another? Like, is it almost like a, like a domino effect? Like, all right, I made this one decision here. Does taking these small actions actually have a, almost like a domino effect on other parts of your life? I wish. Uh, there's not much research to suggest this is the case. Yeah. Um, so. So sadly, I mean, yeah, there's just not not too much to suggest that like me, you know, finally figuring out how to keep my room clean will then help me organize my finances. But I do think the mindset of saying, how would I change my environment to set myself up for success will pay dividends across contexts and across domains. 
So it's not necessarily the decisions, it's more the mindset. And, yeah. and that's really, that's built by awareness or even just a, a curiosity, if you would, about how you can design your life in an interesting way. Yeah. That's really cool. I love the power you're giving people because this is different. I mean, like, I mean, I, I read a lot. I, I go to seminars. I, I listen to a lot of different people and it's always about fixing your mindset, fixing your subconscious, like changing bad thoughts and beliefs and I just love the way that you're hacking that entire thing by going straight for the environment. There's some research to suggest that when people compliment you, uh, you like them more, uh, even if the compliment is not correct or is, isn't genuine. So when you compliment me, I'm, I like you more. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> but wow. It doesn't even have to be true, but I'm a natural. I'm a natural clearly is what is what I've now you just complimented me. So I feel awesome too. Look at that. We're making this yeah. work. Do you think that, I'm curious again about the environment creation because I think that's the most actionable thing that I can take home and, and apply. How did you learn to get better at that skill? I guess knowing which things to change, knowing how to, because I think the how stops me a lot and I'm, I imagine it stops other people too. It's like, oh, I don't even want to try because I don't know how. So yes. how do you sort of translate that curiosity to or at least create the curiosity to want to understand how, as opposed to looking at it as a roadblock. My sense is if we give it as much time as I think some people give to try to understand and change their beliefs and, and go through that whole model of kind of self-help change. I don't know if that self-help is the right word, but, the, yeah. but, but this industry, as much to thinking about the details within our world, I, I think everyone would be okay. We're, we're quite creative. And this is kind of the cool thing, but the hard thing with the behavioral economics uh, research base is that context or the environment matters. So me telling you what to do with your refrigerator or your room or your relationship is a, I, we can give generic advice, but you'd have to go and tweak the small details of life to make the behavior change effective. So I do think it is people kind of looking at their own environment and, and being deeply curious about what is and isn't working for them. And I think sometimes that is you know, basically saying, you know, I'm going to try to, I really like this one friend, we never hang out. And I hang out with all these other toxic friends that kind of make me feel shitty. As soon as that insight comes using that heightened motivation to make a decision to say, I'm going to call that friend up and try to get on their, their schedule. Mm. Um, so there and, it is. It's acting when you're motivated. Yeah, exactly. We, we did an experiment where we showed people how they were spending compared to other people. And the people who were spending more than other people um, kind of felt bad. And this motivated them to commit to a change. So they committed to spend less. And then they told us how they were going to do it. This is amazing. Uh, and the effect lasted a week. So people reduced their spend on eating out categories uh, by an average of $17, which is wonderful. But week two, it went away. And so I think when you have this heightened motivation, you want to think about taking an action at that point. <laughs> because at that point, you're at the highest motivation to do something. So if you're right now feeling motivated to figure out how you learn a new skill, like go online and hire a tutor at least once, lock yourself into that increased motivation because in an hour, two hours or four hours, you're going to not have as much motivation to do the thing. I have like a million questions for you right now. So I'm going to try and just pick one. One, where does motivation come from and can we manufacture it at will? And two, in that logic, so then when we feel motivation, would the best course of action be to take some sort of action that might be continuous, just to almost hack motivation so that you don't have to wait for it to come whenever it comes? 
Yeah, totally. So, so yes to the, this is the second one. Motivation is a tough one. So we, so actually, um, as homework for, for listeners, there's a Jerry Seinfeld Netflix episode in minute 52 ish. He talks about maybe 53, but he talks about this concept called the night guy and morning guy. And it, this basically kind of gives a framework to how we think about why we're motivated to act. So night guy, basically it stays up all night watching and you should really listen to Jerry because I'm not going to be funny. (laughs) Night guy stays up all night eating Oreos, you know, watching Netflix and wakes up in the morning exhausted. And morning guy is just like, oh, night guy, you did it again to me. And it goes to work and he's exhausted, exhausted, exhausted. And then the night comes again and and night guy's there watching Netflix videos and eating Oreos. And the idea there is basically we're really motivated by immediate benefits, even though it may have a cost to us in the future. So we call them immediate and hedonic, which means emotional. And so things like a good movie or like binge watching another show when you know you should go to sleep or eating bad food in the moment is really, really appealing. Things that are not appealing are things that are far in the future, like work, if you're a night guy, or abstract. Imagine saving, saving. The idea of savings is just so abstract. The idea of buying something new at the store is, is very concrete. So motivation is highest when the benefit to somebody is immediate and emotional and concrete. And motivation gets low when it's far in the future. We don't really understand the benefit to us. And I know that's a different framework than kind of most people think about motivation. But when we think about motivation, it's right. It's around desire to act. And so if you want to hack your own motivation, can you give yourself, you know, if you want to say, I'm going to read tonight. You say, well, after reading, I get to have some ice cream. Yeah, And so that, that kind of a pairing is called reward substitution. It's not the answer for everything. And it's also itself hard to do if you don't hold yourself accountable. So, but this idea that you're basically trying to do something hard and pairing it with an immediate benefit is kind of the, the general concept. I love that. And you know, I've always been a believer in delayed gratification. I think that if you can delay gratification, you might increase the odds of you getting anything you want in your life, like thousand percent. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on delayed gratification? And I know instant gratification is is almost like the natural state for us to gravitate towards, but why do you think some people can grasp the concept of delayed gratification better than others? So that's also a questionable statement. So in some contexts, okay. I'm able to delay gratification. In some contexts, I'm not. Okay. So um, sometimes, especially in like product or consumers, we say we view a customer as like one person. This person is a soccer mom, blah, 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 blah. That's not true. This the soccer mom is five people. You know, sometimes she's overwhelmed and sometimes she's generous. And mm. so so we basically have multiple contexts by which we we tend to operate that drive our behavior. Sometimes people are in some contexts basically delay gratification. Actually, in the behavioral economics world, we call them sophisticates, where you basically are able to you sign you know that your future self is going to have problems doing something. And so you design the world to make it easier for you to delay gratification. This may be if you don't want to eat the cookie, putting the cookie away so you don't see it. You understand that you're going to make some flaws and you design your world to prevent yourself from doing that. And then in some cases, we're what the literature would say is naivete, which is basically say you're just going to eat the cookie. You, you don't want to put it away. And that it's not clear that this really crosses domains as much as we think like I am somebody who is not necessarily the accurate statement to be made. And when we think about delayed gratification in general, I think some of the 
the uh, Walter Michel research on the marshmallow is like, you know, like a kid who can wait has higher self-control to eat the marshmallow. There's some recent you know, insights that came up out about that research and how correct it is given the self-control angle. But one of the ideas from it that, that I think is still valid is the kids basically who were able to wait had a trick for themselves. They sat on their hands. So like, that's cool because we can all learn to sit on our hands, right? It's not innate to us as a human that we can't learn to sit on our hands. And we just need to think about the trick or the tool that will help us delay our gratification. It's almost like shifting your focus. Yeah. So you could say, yeah, you're exactly. You're not looking at the marshmallow. You're distracting yourself from whatever it is that you want to do. Or you're actually typically when we are in a scarcity mode or you don't have any money, you're hungry. You're actually only, the only thing you can do is think about food or money. Right. And so uh, when we think about delaying gratification and making better decisions for our future self, we have to get out of that mindset of being so tunneled. It's called tunneling on on this one thing. How does, how do we do that? I I mean, these tips and tricks. So, so thinking about, you know, like if you're hungry, is it actually, I just did a, just to try to two day fast. And so, you know, no reason, no, no big reason why, but you know, it's it's very hard if I continually think about food. Yeah. So what I did was like I my coworkers went out for lunch, and I I could have said I'm going to go with you for social reasons. That would have been ridiculous, right? <laughs> like I know I'm not going to look at food. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to focus on it when I'm in this scarcity mindset. We try to you know distraction is a powerful thing, and I think especially if you're you know, people are depressed or sad or lonely. It's very tempting to kind of sit and think within your own head about the reasons why you're depressed, sad, or lonely. And so there, there is a real question, and I'm not downplaying going through that process and, and really understanding why, but there is some benefit to saying, let's stretch yourself, right? Yeah. Do a behavior that will make you happy. And, and we don't need to ruminate uh, as much on, on the downsides of life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is the first time I've had a conversation with like behavioral economics badass if you would and so like i'm like very curious so pardon like the very like like just deep questions so when when delayed gratification in in the sense of let's say changing or or let's say getting in shape Mm -hmm. right so the immediate instant gratification for me at least like after i work out i feel really good like i feel like i've got headspace i've got clear are there habits and things that we can kind of do that are like also instant gratification and also good for just delayed gratification in general? Like, cause that's like something that I feel like is kind of tiptoeing in both worlds. So two things there. One, so the feedback loops is tough. So working out is a long, slow roll to lose weight. Yeah. Society said working out and eating better are the things to do it. The reality is eating better in your diet is the number one thing to do to lose weight. Why that's hard to understand is because if I eat a salad, I don't immediately understand that this is good. In fact, I feel hungry. Like it's a negative feedback loop. And if I work out, I sweat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, obviously I've lost some weight, right? So I think one, our our feedback loops for working out are actually are too good sometimes if we want to have the goal of weight loss. Now, I'm not saying working out is is bad or not good in general. It's it's of course very good for our heart and and other uh, agility and things in our body. So Okay, so that, that's one. Um, second, there is some research around actually working out and what you're calling like fighting delayed gratification or delayed rewards. And so this is Katie Milkman, and she basically took over a gym and had uh, participants go in and work out. And some participants just went and worked out on the treadmill. And some actually, she had them pick their favorite show 
to listen to either on the TV or audio. You could only listen to the show when you were working out. And so the idea was that basically you look forward to going to the gym, not because you care at all about working out, but because you want to get in shape. And so this is, again, kind of comes back to the reward substitution where you're basically pairing something very concrete, hedonic, immediate with a behavior that is good for you in the long run. So yes, you're delaying gratification, but you're actually substituting it for some gratification that you do want. Um, So I would more recommend a to think deeply about, again, this is kind of the behavior that you're encouraging. So if you spend, let's say, the next six months working out and you lose no weight, this is very sad. And not saying that you wouldn't, but let's say, versus if, you know, and if that's the right behavior, that's good. But we may jump to solve before we actually make sure that the behavior is the correct one for the goal that you want to do. And then the second thing is, is the pairing. So basically thinking about something you really enjoy doing and how would you pair that with, you know, the not so fun thing that you you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, I, I am a class passer. I really like class pass. It's easiest for me to work out in the morning at like 6am. There's no way I would do that for myself. I would probably just wake up at, you know, 545 and be like, well, not today. Yeah. (laughs) Totally cool with the cancellation fee. So for some, the cancellation fee is, is enough to demotivate or to, you know, to, to ensure that you attend. For me, I understand it's not. And so if I ever do a 6 a.m. class and when I do the 6 a.m. or 6.30 classes, I always have a friend. Misha comes with me, right? There's no way that Misha I could let... to the rescue. Yeah, there's no way I could let Misha down and not show up to that class. And so, yes, I could say, you know, I'm, I'm be, I have so much self-control. I did these 6 a.m. classes. It's crazy. But actually, I don't want to look bad in front of Misha. You know, it's kind of funny. I started my, my company, my coffee company, when I was an engineer. And um, so I had like two jobs pretty much. I remember when I was first starting out, I had an accountability buddy. I was part of an entrepreneur group and we were like kind of sharing back and forth, like keeping each other accountable to actually doing stuff because after work, it's really hard to like do more work. And I remember in the very beginning when we wanted to get the party started, like work every day and kind of get into that habit mode, the delayed gratification. I remember we had this thing where if we didn't get the thing we wanted to get done, I had to donate like, $500 to like the KKK or something like ridiculous. That would just like, I didn't want to do. And that was enough of a motivator for me to move forward, which I think is like cool because you can almost squeeze in these like individual little crazy motivators. So what do you do when let's say a motivator isn't working? The question really is, so you said that when motivation strikes, it strikes hot. And when it strikes hot, you're supposed to go forward and move forward and, and just do what you need to do. So let's say you do that. You go forward, you put these blocks in place. You try like a, a secondary thing that isn't, let's say like a, an instant gratification in there, but the instant gratification isn't enough. So let's say you signed up for a class. You didn't know you needed Misha. The cancellation fee didn't work. And now you're back off the horse again. And then you have to wait for that inspiration to strike again in order for you to get started. How do we know from the beginning? Is there something we can do in the very get-go to kind of just know which instant gratification tools are going to work for us the best when we haven't really tried kind of creating these new habits and patterns for ourselves? So a lot of answers to this, and, and, and I think some will work for others. So, so one, I think it, you're not going to know, and this is just experimentation. So like, we basically kind of, if you're curious about yourself is where we started, then can you look at your life more as an experiment and say, I'm very curious what will work for me and what won't work for me. And let's try to figure that out. And let me try, instead of just trying one thing, I'll try three things. 
and not assume that the first one, like the first one you try is just random, right? It's because somebody, you heard it on a podcast, <laughs> right? So I, I think people, we, we should think about more long-term, say life is long, let's try a few things. Mm. That's one. Uh, second, the behavior just may not be good. Maybe you change the behavior, which is like, maybe you don't have to go to 6 a.m. classes. That's ridiculous. Why would you do that? And you say, maybe, maybe my behavior is, doing a uh, a walking group after work with coworkers, and and you just kind of say that it's okay that you're not going to do the 6am stuff but change the behavior so that it is something that's more achievable and more long term and then i think there are just some does that we like things that you should just start with right one is bringing other people into your world more and telling them about your goals asking them to hold you accountable and kind of designing a system with them and it doesn't have to be they're going to not remember sometimes they're not you know like you're we're our own our own most important person <laughs> so it's not that you always have to count on them but but making yourself more visible is kind of something we should just do and then creating more deadlines you know people lose the most weight before their wedding yeah so this idea you have a big milestone coming up and you're going to sprint and along the way you may gain some good habits and so would more consider like how would you manifest these deadlines or arbitrary milestones for yourself that can help drive the urgency. Like it's always going to be a better day to work out at 6am tomorrow than it is today. I'm so excited. I'm like going to go and like just change my entire environment. Like right after this episode, like I'm so pumped. Kristen, uh, thank you so much for just sharing everything. Um, if, if anybody wanted to learn more about Irrational Labs and the work you do, and if they wanted to get involved and reach out, how would they go about doing so? So yeah, irrationallabs.org. We have a really nice contact us form and I read all of them that come in. So I think that would be the number one way to get a hold of us. Perfect. One last question. And then um, I will let you go back to saving the world. In the midst of everything you've experienced, in the midst of everything you've seen other people do go through and all the data you've seen just from years of being in the field, personally, how do you stay grounded every single day? It is very nice to come home and have a quick conversation with a roommate that is really genuine and thoughtful and caring. And so I think I've, my way I stay grounded is having other people who I adore and admire easy access, proximity based friendship, uh, but friendship, you know, and, and many times it's random. Our neighbors are random. Our dorm roommates are random. Uh, and so if you can design that, I think it's very nice to say it's, you know, it's just, they're just a, across the hall is, is a really good friend. That's mine. I, I do some meditation. I do some writing, all the things that you're, you're know, supposed to say when you say grounded. <laughs> but I think friends are really it. Oh, I think friends are the best. And I'm glad you're a new friend of mine, Kristen. I want to say thank you again so much for, for being here and sharing your, your amazing wisdom around the science of behavioral economics. I, I sure as hell took a lot out of this. So I hope everyone else did too. But everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your friend, Kristen, and from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast 
Read in our thoughtful posts or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.